will take your Bible and let's go to John chapter 21. John 21, verse 18. And yes, we are covering uh, some of the same verses again this week that we saw last week. Last week we ran through verse 19. But I'd like us to step back a bit and begin with Jesus' words to Peter in verse 18. It will give us a bit of context. And there's encouragement in these words that I missed last week but want to leave you with it today, along with two other encouragements from these final words of John's Gospel. So we are ending our trek through John's Gospel today on three notes of encouragement. So be listening for those. If you're wondering what we're doing after John, uh, the plan is to spend the summer on, on a few items that we hope will equip you in studying God's Word and making disciples. And then eventually, I'd like to walk you through the book of Zechariah. So that's what's on the horizon. But today we finish John's gospel. So let's jump in at verse 18. Jesus speaks to Peter here. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Father, your Son is that great. The world itself could not contain the books that would be written of him. We have been on a journey through good news the last two and a half years. As we've looked and read John's gospel together and meditated on his words And in many ways, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And we want to see more of him this morning as we finish these words together. So attend the preaching of your word now. And let the word come with power and full conviction and in the Holy Spirit. And let us all receive it with joy in the Holy Spirit. That it might have its appropriate effect in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So before I get to our three encouragements, I think it would help us grasp, uh, again, the weight of Jesus' words to Peter here. Earlier in the gospel, Peter had promised that he would die for Jesus. He wanted to give his life for his master. But when it came to enduring the shame of a cross, Peter chickened out. While he witnessed his master weak and going to the cross like a helpless lamb led to its slaughter, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times over. In those moments, as his master suffered, Peter decided that the Calvary road was not going to be his road. If following Jesus publicly meant hanging scandalously from a cross, Peter preferred to keep his allegiance a private matter. It was one thing for, Jesus to follow, for, for Peter to follow Jesus while Jesus was changing water into wine and feeding 5,000 and raising the dead, but it was a whole other thing for Peter to follow Jesus when blood started flying and flesh started tearing and the nails and the hammer started clinking. So Peter, living for himself, doing what he wanted to do, walking wherever he wanted to walk, he forsook the cross. But now, things are going to be different. Jesus comes to Peter. And having died as Peter's substitute having bled for Peter's sins, having drank the cup of God's wrath against Peter's man-fear. Jesus comes to Peter, restores him as an apostle, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John tells us this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. He will spread his hands. He will be crucified. In other words, Peter, you used to go wherever you wanted and do whatever you wanted but when i stretch out when i stretched out my hands for you i bought you with precious blood i took ownership of your life your old self that preferred comfort over a cross i took it to the grave and crucified it so that it's no longer you who live but christ who lives in you when you are old you will stretch out your hands just like i did 
Jesus has purchased everything Peter now needs to follow him on the Calvary road. Jesus is risen as Peter's ongoing help to walk the same path of suffering love that his master already walked. Jesus is now giving Peter the ability to follow him to the cross, even if it's not a place that Peter wants to go. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, he says. The way of the cross isn't pleasant. It's suffering for the sake of Christ. It's death to self in order to serve others who don't like you. It's even martyrdom for some, as John tells us is the case for Peter. Jesus is telling Peter you're not going to have a booming fishing business anymore. You're not going to see your 40th wedding anniversary. You're not going to see some of your grandchildren born. You're not going to live to marry off all your children. You will stretch your hands for me. As Russell Moore once put it, Jesus interrupts Peter's life plan with a cross. He crucifies Peter's life plan. And it's not just a cross that Peter must bear. It's a cross we're all called to bear. We may not stretch out our hands in a martyr's death, as as Jesus promises that Peter will do, but the cross will characterize all of Jesus' disciples. It's as Jesus put it elsewhere, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ died for all that those who live, that's you and me, if we believe in Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus' call on Peter's life is the call on all of us who hold Jesus to be so dear. The call to follow is the call to die, to crucify all that is earthly in us, that our bodies might be a living sacrifice for the Lord every day in the salvation of others. That's why I said last week that loving Jesus and feeding His sheep are costly. When you give yourself over to loving Jesus, you've given yourself over to dying to see all of His sheep, all of His people alive with Christ. Dying to see others live isn't easy. It isn't convenient. It is costly. All true love is costly. Just look at the cross. Jesus has called Peter to a cross, and He has called us to a cross. But not without encouragement. Not without encouragement found in Himself. Listen to to the three encouragements now that, that help us carry this cross Jesus is taking us, Jesus is calling us to take up. They are encouragements that will keep you going when the suffering comes and when people hurt you and when death itself draws near as you spend yourself for Jesus. Encouragement number one, Jesus knows the future of His disciples. 
Jesus knows and plans the future of his disciples. Or we may put it differently. Nothing comes to us apart from Jesus. Nothing comes to us apart from Jesus. This is the encouragement I said that I overlooked last week, and it's precious beyond words. Jesus knows Peter's future here. You will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you. Jesus said this to show by what kind of death Peter was to die, was was to glorify God. Jesus knows Peter's future, and he knows yours. He created Peter's future, and he created yours. Peter's suffering isn't catching Jesus by surprise, and your suffering doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. And this shouldn't surprise us. On numerous occasions in John's Gospel, we have seen that Jesus revealed that he knows the future. That he controls it so that all of God's purposes come to pass. The clearest example of this comes out in John chapter 13, verse 19. Jesus tells the disciples there about Judas's betrayal before it even happens. And then he says this, I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you might believe that I am. That I am God, in other words. Jesus' knowledge of the future is meant to produce faith in His disciples. Faith that He is God. Faith that He is in control. Faith that He is wise and sovereign and good. This even comes out in relation to the disciples' suffering. A bit later in chapter 16, verses 2 and 4, Jesus says to them, They will put you, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, Jesus' knowledge of the future, it plays itself out practically in the disciples' lives like this. When you start suffering, remember what I said. Remember that I'm in control. Your enemies only get one hour. Nothing will be coming to you apart from Jesus. Just like the cross didn't come to Jesus apart from the will of His Father. Jesus knows the future of His disciples, and that should give us courage to follow Him. How does Jesus say it elsewhere? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." Translation, the Father is so intimately acquainted with you that He plans the lifespan of every hair follicle on your head. It's 
Some of you don't have much, and you're going, how's that encouraging? <laughs> he plans. The, the point is that not a single head of hair on your head will perish at the hand of your enemies apart from Jesus Christ's permission. He knows your future. He has planned it well. Folks, assertions like this bring so much encouragement when we take up our cross daily. Please get this, because if we don't give this, get this, we will be consumed with self-pity and complaining and doubt and all kinds of despair. I'm not saying that to dismiss your pain. I'm saying that to help you through your pain cling to Jesus. Not one ounce of suffering comes to you apart from Jesus' knowledge and Jesus' design to bring the Father glory through your life. That changes your outlook on everything when you're suffering. It means that evil is not in control. God is. Jesus is. It means your suffering isn't meaningless. God has a purpose for it all, and that purpose is revealed in bringing Himself glory through your life. You will not shed a single tear in vain when you are living for Jesus Christ, the Almighty God. Jesus isn't disconnected from your sufferings. He knew them before you, and He knows them better than you do now. And He knows how to provide perfectly in the midst of them. And so we can cry out to Him for help. It means you are not alone in your cross-bearing. Jesus is with you always in life and in death. As J.C. Ryle once put it, everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by Christ, who is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. Read that again. Everything from beginning to end is foreseen, arranged by Christ, who is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. How do we know that Jesus is too loving to do us harm? By the sufferings that He ordains for us. We know that Jesus is too loving to do us harm because of what He suffered for us. Every ounce of suffering the follower of Jesus experiences isn't because God is still angry with us. Jesus satisfied God's anger on the cross as He stood condemned in our place. And therefore we know that everything He has planned for us, even when the journey is rough and it leads to sorrowful days and may even kill you like it's going to do to Peter, we can receive all of it as first filtered through His sovereign hands of love. 
That's true whether you suffer long days of hardship as a mom serving your children in Jesus' name. Or you spend the rest of your days on earth battling cancer with Jesus. Or you suffer a martyr's death for preaching the gospel. Jesus knows all your pain and we can take great comfort that if he knows it and he planned it to bring God glory with our lives, then he will give us every grace necessary to get us through it and then reward us with himself on the other side. Isn't this what he promises the churches in the book of Revelation? He tells them of their future suffering. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. Some of you killed... And he calls them to endure and then promises reward when it's over. And in every case, he's rewarding them with himself. Encouragement number two. Jesus calls us to contentment in following him. Jesus calls us to contentment in following him. In verse 19, Jesus calls Peter to follow him. Even though he's just told Peter what's going to happen to him, that his life's going to end in martyrdom. You know, Peter isn't to preoccupy himself from from day to day, worrying about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it will all happen. No, no. Peter is to have just one daily concern. Follow Jesus. Keep his sights set on Jesus. Now, in the immediate context, Jesus has literally called uh, Peter for a little walk on the beach here. They just finished breakfast on the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus restores Peter, says, follow me. And it seems like they start walking down the beach with with Peter following Jesus. And then Peter turns around. Here's John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. Jesus didn't have to tell John, follow me. John is already following Jesus. And Peter discovers this as he turns around. In short order, Peter has taken his sights off Jesus. And he begins to concern himself with John. Lord, what about this man, he says. Peter wants to know what's in store for John. The Lord just outlined Peter's destiny and martyrdom. So Peter says, what about this guy? His first move is one of comparison. Is he going to stretch out his hands too, like me? Is he going to have to die like this too? If I'm going to die following him, will he get to live longer than me? What's he got coming? You may know some of the same kinds of comparisons. 
we start following Jesus, our focus is set on Him, but then we turn away and concern ourselves with all kinds of comparisons. Why aren't we like that church over there? We're preaching the same gospel. Why hasn't the Lord given us more, quote-unquote, success? I've been serving my tail off. What about him? I've been sacrificing everything to love my sisters. What about her? It doesn't look like she's suffering as much as I am. Or maybe the comparisons take a different form. How come he can read a hundred books a year and memorize every page and I average six minutes per page with little comprehension of any of it? How come he can preach without notes but my mind goes blank without a manuscript? Why am I still single but they aren't? Why do all my friends have happy marriages but I struggle in mine? Why do they get another kid and I don't right now? Why has my past left me with such hard consequences to deal with and theirs hasn't? Again, these are, this is not to minimize the pain you experience in any of these questions. I bring it up to teach you how to cling to Jesus in the midst of those questions. On and on our comparisons could go. And if we're not careful, we live by these comparisons. We become enslaved to these comparisons. Jesus' next few words are blunt and piercing, but they are full of liberating encouragement. If it's my will that John remain until I come, and he means at his second coming, if it's my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. In other words, what's happening to John is my business, not yours. Your business is following me. Why is that so liberating? It's liberating for at least two reasons. One way it's liberating is that it teaches us that obedience to Jesus will take different forms in the kingdom of God. Obedience is going to take different forms in the kingdom of God. In His sovereign wisdom, God has allotted His people with different gifts, different responsibilities, different sacrifices, different vocations, different local churches, and different outcomes to their individual ministries. Peter is going to be martyred. John will live a while longer. Doesn't mean he won't suffer. But he will live a while longer and write a gospel. And three other letters. And the book of Revelation. Both called to follow Jesus, but with different outcomes. God has given different disciples different ministries with different outcomes. You don't have to compare yourself to each other. There may be ways you learn to imitate others as they imitate Jesus, but you don't have to be them or even pretend to be them. You need only to follow Jesus with all the grace that you've been given by Jesus. 
I still remember sitting in the office of my advisor and receiving a pointed rebuke that turned out to be one of the most liberating encouragements in my walk with Christ. Rachel and I were well into our second year of marriage. I was in seminary, now pursuing a Ph.D., and really more than a Ph.D. in my mind. You see, there were certain Christian leaders in the, uh, in the academic world that I had grown to love a bit too much, even to the degree that I began embracing their calling as my own. I wanted to be just like them, be proficient in as many as languages as they were, write books as often as they did, be able to speak like them, read like them, teach like them. My love for these men and the roles these men served in had become so consuming that I had forsaken following Jesus without even knowing it. I had begun comparing myself to others. And everything about myself and my calling was deficient until I looked just like these other respected men and could perform just like these other men performed. Regardless if their situation in life looked different than my own, which it absolutely did, regardless if their gifts were much different than my own, and they absolutely were, I wanted their life and I wanted their calling I wanted it so bad that even the wife God had blessed me with and told me to love very plainly as Christ loved the church, I would leave her in tears, neglecting her while pursuing becoming these men. I stayed up late, woke up early to try to obtain what these other men had. My advisor saw right through what I was doing and he sat me down and said this, Brett, you are not D.A. Carson, and you never will be. The Lord has gifted him in many ways that he has not gifted you, and your lack of contentment in what the Lord has given you is killing you and your family. He was right. And at that moment, the rebuke stung. It was a blow to my pride. Right? Wanted to start racing to all those texts about, well, aren't we supposed to imitate people? And aren't we supposed to try to justify what I'm doing? But his rebuke served as one of the most liberating encouragements in my Christian walk. A weight lifted when I left his office. And gradually the Lord lifted that weight off my marriage too. It was liberating because it freed me from all the comparisons I had been making before and shaping my life around. Only one thing was necessary for me. Follow Jesus, Brett, with what he's given to you. Jesus' words are also liberating. Because in them, he's not only calling Peter away from preoccupying himself with John and comparing him and asking these questions, he's also calling Peter to the joy of his life found in the person of Christ himself. To follow Jesus is to have everything. The rebuke, you can picture it, them walking on the beach. The rebuke turns, snaps Peter's head back around. See what is valuable. 
Why make comparisons when you have Christ in all His resurrected glory? Isn't it Jesus that is great after all? Peter? That leads me to one of the last encouragement John leaves us with here. Encouragement number three. Jesus gives us abiding eyewitness testimony to His greatness. Jesus gives us abiding eyewitness testimony to His own greatness. John, in uh, verse 23 here, he has to correct a misunderstanding on the part of the brothers. You know, they have taken Jesus' words way too literally. Jesus wasn't saying that John himself would survive until his return. John was eventually going to die too. But that doesn't mean that John's testimony was going to die. No, John's testimony would actually abide until Jesus returns. John himself might lie in the grave, but his testimony would abide until Jesus returns. That's what you're holding in your hands, and that's what we've been thumbing through the last two and a half years. That's exactly how he presents it in verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. That is, who is still bearing witness about these things. How is he still bearing witness about these things? Well, he's written them down for the coming generations like you and me. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. Now, in terms of ancient historiography, that's one of the strongest statements you can find. Everybody knew in the first century that the most trustworthy historiography was based on the testimony of real eyewitnesses. The more eyewitnesses you had, the stronger your historiography. And if you were really good, you'd write your account within the living memory of those other eyewitnesses. That way people could, when they read your stuff, they could go ask these folks who are still alive to confirm whether you're telling the truth or not. And that's precisely the sort of thing we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are building their testimony of Jesus upon eyewitnesses still alive as they're writing their Gospels. John, on the other hand, ups the ante one better than that. His testimony isn't just based on other eyewitnesses. He is the eyewitness to everything else he writes about. John is both the witness and the author, which makes his account all the more trustworthy and why he adds, and we know that his testimony is true. That's a strange way of putting things. We know that his testimony is true. I think John could mean one of two things here. One option is to read the we, we know that his testimony is true, as another way John refers to himself. It's like he's saying, I, but with we. This is a common practice in ancient, among ancient and even modern writers today. And it seems that 
John uses we the same way in other places. So it's, it's found on the lips of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 11, in his interaction with, with Nicodemus, he says, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, we speak of what we know, but he's talking about himself. John seems to use it this way later on in his, in his first letter, verse 4. He says, we are writing these things. But the rest of his letter plainly says and repeatedly says, I am writing these things. Which is it? We or I? John, who's writing these things? We're writing these things or I'm writing these things? John's saying, I is we or we is I. And then again, in 3 John chapter, I mean, uh, verse 12, we also add our testimony, he says, and he seems to be referring to himself as an authoritative eyewitness to Jesus. So that's one option. We is I. And it shouldn't surprise us in a gospel where he's repeatedly referred to himself in the third person. And then he jumps into the first person in chapter 19. And now we see the first person Plural, we. That's one option. We is I. But as I reread John's gospel this week, I, I'm inclined to think a bit differently. So you can take this home and test it for yourself. You see, as John lays out his story, he's building a case for why you should trust in Jesus. He's trying to convince you that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you should believe in Him. And so throughout the Gospel, He, call, he, he has called uh, several witnesses to the, to the stand, so to speak, to bear witness. And they are as follows. John the Baptist bears witness. Jesus Himself bears witness. Witness Jesus' works, the, the miracles and, and all that he performed, they bear witness. The Father bears witness. The Old Testament scriptures bear witness. The crowd who witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, it said that they bore witness. The Holy Spirit would bear witness. And the 11 disciples as a group would bear witness. Witness. Eight witnesses, and now John continues by adding his own to say, and we, that is me and all these other witnesses, we know that his testimony is true. I've got Jesus behind me, the Old Testament scriptures behind me, the Father, the Holy Spirit, that crowd, John the Baptist, they're all behind me, and I'm bearing witness to the truth. Regardless of which way you go, the point is that John has left us with an abiding, trustworthy, eyewitness testimony. And what he has borne witness to is the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's what he means by the last words in verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written... I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I was talking to Brian Walker this week, and Brian described John's gospel as a black hole of sorts. Its depth and its, its weight and its density suck you inside, and it won't let you out. He said, I've been preaching this gospel way too fast. 
at warp speed. He'd still be in chapter 1. And I believe it. Those of you who are in his Genesis class know. There's just too much glory packed within it, he was saying. And just to think, John is saying that in comparison to who Jesus is and what he's done, John's contribution is small. It's one book, sliver of a book on a world library. It's a sufficient testimony, but it's a small one. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus is that great to John. John has seen Jesus' glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He knows the unending breadth of what it means for the eternal Word to become flesh and dwell among us. You see, you can't read John's statement and just think of a few miracles Jesus did here and there, with each one containing its own revelatory event. No, for Jesus to be God means that his entire life as God-man on earth is constant revelation. Constant revelation of the glory of God of which there is no end. Jesus' person, Jesus' words, Jesus' works all always give constant revelation of God to the world. And not only that, Everything about Jesus' life on earth is in some fashion or other linked with God's prior self-revelation in Scripture, the first two-thirds of your, your Bible. And so even with John's, within John's Gospel, you can't hardly read a paragraph without forming link after link after link with the, the rest of the story that God's been telling. All of His person, on all of his works, they align with the testimony of the Old Testament. And that creates its own development as well that that you could go on and on and on about. In fact, you can't even hardly hold all of, of John's themes that he mentions in your mind at once as you read his gospel. You want to know who you should worship? Well, Jesus is God, verse 1, right, of his gospel. You want to know where you came from? Well, Jesus created you. You want to know how to have life? Well, Jesus is the life, John says. Are you trapped in darkness right now? Well, Jesus is the light of the world. Do you have a sin problem? Jesus is God's Passover lamb that takes away all of your sins and delivers you from death. You need a man full of the Spirit to lead you? Well, Jesus is God's anointed one. How will we ever get out of the sin Adam put us in to begin with? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, the the new Adam. Who will stand as your representative before God and bring in the kingdom of peace? Well, Jesus is the King of Israel. How are you supposed to meet with God? Well, Jesus is the new and the better temple. Well, who's going to remove my curse of death? Well, Jesus is the Son of Man who becomes a curse for you in your place when he's hung on a pole like the serpent was in the wilderness. 
Who can clothe me with new garments of righteousness? Well, Jesus is the bridegroom who comes to purify his bride. Where can I find boundless and extravagant love? Well, Jesus and God's love in Jesus to the world. What about my adultery? Jesus will give you living water. I'm only to chapter four, folks. He is great. You can write volumes upon volumes on each of those subjects I just mentioned and never exhaust the depth of their glories. And not only that, John doesn't just pick up each of them, uh, pick, pick each of them up and then set them down. All right, we're talking about the bridegroom. Now I'm going to talk to you, put him down. I'm going to talk to you about the, the, the son of man. I'm going to put him down. Then I'm gonna... No, no, no. He keeps them all running throughout his gospel, adding more and more and more so that they're all held together as he races you to the cross and he races you to the resurrection, showing how each relate to one another in one and the same person of Jesus and how he brings your salvation. And we can't even stop there because the first deed Jesus did in this gospel is that he created the world. He's got deeds, bunches of deeds, billions of deeds since that moment. And John even presses us back before the creation of the world. In John chapter 17 where Jesus' prayer reveals the Son's mission to die for His people even before He created the world. Indeed, if it was humanly possible to write about all that Jesus did and tease them out in relation to all He created, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. A world library is too small when it comes to Jesus Jesus truly is that great. And John's testimony about Jesus' greatness still abides. It continues today in the words written here. You see, the call to follow Jesus in taking up our cross isn't a call to lesser greatness, to lesser joy, to lesser pleasure. The call to take up our cross is a call to true greatness found in Jesus, to greater joy found in Jesus, to endless pleasures found in Jesus because Jesus is truly that great. In our passage, Jesus commands Peter outside of himself to find something infinitely greater in following Jesus. It's as if he's saying, come on, Peter, don't toy around with silly comparisons. Follow the one who is incomparably great. Follow me. And then John turns to us and he points us in the same direction. John is trying, with this gospel, is trying to snap your head around to see who you are following. It's as if John is saying, stop boring yourself with your comparisons and come follow greatness. Stop striving after empty ambitions in this world and come satisfy your soul with Jesus. Stop finding your life and the pleasures the lesser pleasures of the world and come find true pleasure in following Jesus. 
I was with him for three years, and I know that his worth is beyond all comparison. Come with me and find life in following him. Read my testimony and let it transform your mind about what is truly great because I have seen what is truly great, and his name is Jesus. He is the only God who is at the Father's side, and he has made God known to us. So how are we encouraged to take up our cross daily for Christ? Well, we take up our cross daily because Jesus knows our future. We need not worry about what's coming to us. Nothing will come to us apart from His loving hands, and we can trust Him when we take up our cross. We can take up our cross daily because Jesus is enough for us. We, we can rest content in Him because in Him is everything And we can take up our cross daily because Jesus is great. He is our reward. There are no true competitors to how great He is. And we can take every confidence based on this abiding eyewitness testimony right here. We can take every confidence that He will satisfy our souls. Father, thank You for Christ. He is great. Please help us to see Him more clearly as we die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. In Jesus' name, amen.